0: Our scripture text today comes from Romans 12, the whole chapter. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, as I was preparing for our sermons, for my sermon this week and next week, I uh, I had submitted a couple of options to give to Joe for the call of worship. The call of worship is the very first psalm that I read that is read at the beginning of the service. Um, so when Pastor Th- Thacker sent me the completed liturgy to look over, it just so happened to be the evening of June twenty fourth, which was the day the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. So of course, like. You, I was ecstatic. It was a day to rejoice, but it was also a little bittersweet, just in the sense that every time I looked at the news or social media, as I'm sure you can uh, agree with, I was inundated, inundated with stupidity and foolishness, and not just not just ignorance of the facts. You know, like in terms of like the federal versus state law and that confusion. I'm talking about. The wailing and gnashing of teeth and the vitriol, the ridiculous threats, the overall extreme rhetoric of many on the pro-choice side. And so as I sat there reading today's call to worship, it was like it had been written specifically for that circumstance. Let me read just a part of it again. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. So I don't use stupid in a mean spirited way. This is how Scripture describes the man who cannot understand what is right, good, and just. And I don't know about you, but being exposed to this type of behavior, even if it's just generally directed at me, it has an effect. Um, it, it, naturally, it stirs up anger, right? And, but there's also an element of sadness. You know, many of these people who feel this way and are saying the things that they're saying are people that I have some sort of relationship with. Uh, their family, their their former co- co-workers and, and friends that I've made somewhere along my life's journey. You know? and, uh, and, and it's hard to watch people that you care about be this blind. And yet, we are called to confront their blindness, to call attention to it, to rebuke it. But how do we do this? Some Christians claim that we ought to be always inoffensive and loving when confronting sin and wickedness that our winsomeness is what will draw the sinner to Christ. And then on the other extreme, we have those that advocate this full-on assault of mockery and aggressive apologetics. And, And honestly, I think there is a time and a place for both approaches and everything in between there. But when we talk about cultural engagement, particularly in addressing cultural sins... The conversation typically begins with our approach to others. How do we deal with these people that have a different opinion, a wicked opinion? Um, how do we speak the truth to our neighbor? And I'm talking about a neighbor that lives next door to us or somebody on Facebook. Um, but, but this is not where the conversation, this is not where Scripture begins that conversation, right? It's not. The first question is not how do you deal with them? Scripture begins the conversation here in corporate worship, and then proceeds to the neighbor. Notice the progression in our text this morning. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may then discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're going to dig into this a little bit, but essentially what Paul is saying is, first things first, come to worship, because it is through worship that your ability to deal with the world will be properly formed. So when I make burgers for my family, I typically buy fresh beef, and Denise will season it up just right, We'll make it into patties, throw it on the smoker, and they're always a hit. Recently, I was cleaning out the freezer. <laughs> That's always like a <laughs> trouble when you start sending us off like that. And, um, and I noticed there was a small pack of something in the back of the freezer. And it was these preformed patties from the store that I have no idea how long they were in there. But they were frozen. So, I mean, that's, that's good, right? Like, if they're frozen, they're fine. So I seasoned them up, threw them on the grill, and served them. And the moral of the story is it doesn't matter how good a cook you are. If the meat stinks, the burger will stink. <laughs> Um, And let's face it, the modern church's debate over how to handle cultural issues is like the equivalent to a debate between whether McDonald's or Burger King is better, right? The meat stinks. And if I may squeeze every ounce of grease out of my meat metaphor, that sounded better when I wrote it. It sounds worse when I said it. Um, the, it, the issue is not so much the type of meat That is being used Though that is important, right? We want prime Angus beef We don't want 80-20 chuck But, um, but it's, it's more foundational than that the, the issue is recognizing that the meat is important So the theology is We can discuss the aspects of what constitutes Good biblical worship But first, the church needs to recognize That worship actually matters What's fascinating about today's text is that it's often used as a justification for playing down corporate worship. So phrases like a living sacrifice and spiritual worship, these get internalized to mean something happening in your heart, an emotional experience. Corporate worship is a good thing, sure, they say, but what really matters is getting the feels. And and that is as likely to happen at home reading your Bibles or in the car listening to Christian radio, as it is coming to church, right? But Paul's point in the first verse of Romans 12 is that corporate worship is vital. It's the only logical response to what Christ has done for us. The first 11 chapters of Romans have been this rich theological exhortation on sin and the guilt of man and the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ and but, but it leads up to our passage today where Paul says, Therefore, brothers, because of the mercies of God toward you, do this. And what is this? It's to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is worship. Paul means something specific here. And he's drawing on the Old Covenant sacrificial language to make his point. In the Old Covenant... The Israelite could not offer themselves to God. There was this veil between them and God, preventing them from drawing near. Instead, they would bring an unblemished animal, either a lamb or a goat, and lay their hand upon the head of that animal and kill it. The priest would then sprinkle the blood on the altar and then burn portions of that animal, and the smoke, becoming a physical representation of that animal, would ascend to the Lord, and then he would accept it. And Paul is saying... That the Christian is now able to take his place on the, before the Lord. Um, he is a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Of course, being, because the Christian is in Christ, he is an acceptable sacrifice. Not on his own, it's because of Christ. And that's the only reason he can be an acceptable sacrifice. His praise now is the smoke that ascends up to God. This is not intellectual assent. It's not an emotional response When you hear a moving song on the Christian radio station It's gathering for corporate worship Notice that word Present Present your bodies That's the first command That word means to respond, to answer In the same way that the Israelites Presented their representative Sacrifices to the Lord at the altar We are to present Our own bodies as living sacrifices It's What this is, it's answering the call to worship. Jesus says, come, and we respond. We obey. We gather together as the bride of Christ before the throne of God. Paul then gives us two reasons why this is necessary. First, he says this is our spiritual worship. Again, this is not a reference to some kind of internal emotional experience. The only other time this word Translated as spiritual in the ESV that I read this morning. And the only other time it's used is in, the new, in the New Testament is 1 Peter 2.2. 2, where new Christians are exhorted to long for spiritual milk. So that they may grow up. And the analogy, of course, is that in the same way that babies drink milk so that they can grow up big and strong. Baby Christians should long for the word of God, which is their spiritual milk. It will help them grow up. But what happens is many assume spiritual take, it, it has this ethereal or mystical um, meaning to it. And, it. and then that meaning, they take that and they attach it to Romans 12. But a better way to understand this word spiritual is reasonable. Sometimes it's translated reasonable, maybe in your New King James, or, or even rational is the proper translation. The Greek word... Is logicos Logikos Logikos. Okay we're working on that I'll get it Uh, Where we get our word logic So the idea is that because of the great mercies That God has shown us It is only logical It is only rational It is only reasonable that we present ourselves to him in worship Peter Lightheart In his recent book that he's been doing the 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 Theopolitan Vision Says this Responding in worship is the only sane way to live All that we have is gift, and so the only rational stance in life is one of constant thanks for the gift of every breath, every heartbeat, every good and perfect gift that comes from above. Sharing Eucharist, we become a different sort of people, a grateful people in the midst of a humanity that does not acknowledge God as God or give thanks. A thankful people is a people attuned to reality. Reality as a gift of the Father through the Son and the Spirit. And then that that leads us to the second reason why Paul says worship is important. Not only is it a logical response to a holy and merciful God, but it does something to us. When we gather for worship, our minds are renewed, which then leads to our transformation, which then in turn allows us to properly discern the will of God Drawing near to God in worship transforms us into people that model genuine human life before the world. And I'll say that again. Like, there is a real way of being human. The only real way to be human is those that are transformed by God to do so. It's not just this natural thing that you are born with. You have to be changed in order to be a proper human. This is why thoughtfulness. And how we worship is so important. Now, I want to preface what I'm saying, I'm going to say here. Uh, The the last few years, in many ways, have been a blessing to the church. The lines between faithfulness and unfaithfulness have been broadened and darkened. And we find true brothers and sisters in, in Christ in traditions that are not our own. And we ought to celebrate that. But at the end of the day, while we can work alongside these brothers and sisters and truly worship together as one body, we ought to take very seriously the way we worship. Paul is telling us that our worship matters, that it shares a close relationship with the old covenant sacrificial worship, and that when we do it, we are transformed and our minds are renewed. If our worship is governed by our preferences, or our desire to entertain, or our seeker-sensitive strategy, then we will miss out on the God-ordained means of our growth, which things like confession, psalm singing, corporate prayer, a service saturated in the scriptures, biblical preaching, weekly communion. And now, it it can be difficult to worship this way, right? No doubt about it. All of us are at different levels of familiarity with the liturgy. But we, we all, I think, had this moment where we were, let's say, introduced to a psalm chant, and we were like, what? <laughs> yeah. um, well, the reason, you know, just, the reason we chant psalms is simple enough. It gives us an opportunity to sing a psalm word for word. We sang Psalm 98 earlier, which is wonderful. That's, that's a metrical psalm. The psalm is arranged in such a way that it can be set to a catchy tune, and we can all sing in different parts, and the verses rhyme. And this is a great way to sing psalms. But there is also a tremendous benefit in singing the psalms word for word. And if we think about it in terms of how God matures us through corporate worship, as Paul says, then chanting a psalm word for word every Sunday, 52 Sundays a year, has to make a difference in our lives. Think about the impact this would have on your life and on your children's lives. And think about the impact that it has on the world. Of the the many memes that have come out since the Roe vs. Wade reversal, one of my favorites is the meme where it's a picture of dominoes lined up. And the first domino says, uh, 2011, Obama makes fun of Trump. And then, you know, the dominoes topple and the final domino was Roe vs. Wade reversal. And, and there's some truth to that, of course, um, and it's funny, but in all honesty, why did Roe versus Wade really get reversed? Because of the Psalms and prayers of the faithful. No question about it. This is how God works. Recently, my family and I, so we've been working our way through the book of Ezekiel, and there are a lot of odd moments in Ezekiel, but there are two in particular that have stuck with me over these last couple of months. The one I'm going to talk about next week, but the one I want to talk about this week comes from Ezekiel 4. Now Ezekiel is a priest exiled in Babylon, and he's called by God to prophesy Jerusalem's destruction. And in chapter 4, we see Ezekiel being told to construct a model of Jerusalem on a brick. So he, he builds this model of Jerusalem, and he lays siege to it as a prophecy, this physical prophecy of what God is going to do in the future. And this prophecy also included Ezekiel laying on his side before this model for a set number of days. And then we read this in verse 7. And you shall set your face towards the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. It's an odd passage to be sure. In essence, what Ezekiel is being told to do is represent God against the city of Jerusalem. And and while Babylon is the nation that will be conducting the siege that will lead to Jerusalem's destruction, it is God who is orchestrating, orchestrating it all. God's face is set against the people, His people, and His arm is bared. What does that mean? Well, there are many references in the Bible to God's outstretched arm or God's right arm, and these denote God's strength. And this probably does have a connection to this verse and and what is happening in Ezekiel 4. But there is only one other passage in the Bible that tells us of God bearing His arm. And this is found in Isaiah 52. Listen to verses 9 and 10. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people, He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So we have an example of God bearing his arm in judgment and wrath against Jerusalem, and then we have an example of God bearing his arm in salvation toward her. So, what does it mean for God to bear his arm? Well, I, th- I think Rich Mullins said it best. So, for you that grew up in the '80s you, in, with Christian music, you ought to be able to finish his line. When he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the ritz. Our God, God is, God. An, no. yes, our God is an awesome God. So you know this song, and I think that's what it means. Most commentators say the same thing: God is bearing his arm in a way is a way of saying that God is getting to work. He's rolling up his sleeves. A few commentators connect it to the practice of girding up the loins which was the practice of tucking up the loose flowing parts of the robe in order to move quickly. And as I've been reflecting on this phrase over the last few months, I've even thought about it in terms of the way I dress for church. You know, and if you notice, I roll my sleeves up. It's just this, I love the symbolism, and and I probably think way too much about the way I dress for church considering I shop at Goodwill, but... um, (laughs) But I do like it. Really, it's this symbolism that's really kind of come into my head. I like think, yes, I'm, I'm coming to work here. Like, I got work to do. I'm going to sing, and and uh, this is not just me coming to be entertained. I got I got stuff to do here, and um, and I think that perfectly fits with what we're doing in worship. We're getting to work, which makes sense because we are made in the image of God. We are like our Father. We are workers. Just in our text this morning, look at all the ways God works. In the first three verses, He bestows mercy. He accepts us. He renews us. He wills. He gives grace. He assigns faith. He gives gifts. He is a God that gets down to the business of saving and blessing His people. But then in verse 19, He gets to work against the wicked. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is the nature of the work we do here in worship. When God works through our worship, the righteous are raised up, and the wicked are brought low. Often, these are one and the same thing. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, this enacted a trigger law in Tennessee that will outlaw abortion with minor exceptions in the state. For the 15 or so remaining abortion clinics in Tennessee, this means they will go out of business. The doctors who perform abortions will have to find a new job, or else they're going to face time in prison, hopefully. For the wicked, this no doubt causes anxiety, anger, and distress. They're losing their livelihoods. Amen. However, for the righteous, this is a cause for celebration. This is why we worship. This is the fruit of our work. And this should also encourage us to keep striving in our worship. We are laborers, but we want to be skilled laborers, right? So this is why we practice singing every week during Sunday school. And beyond that, at the Draper's house once a month, we're sharpening our swords. We're building our muscles. Other parts of the liturgy do this as well. Praying out loud as a body helps us with our personal prayer life. Weekly corporate confession trains us to be quick to repentance and quick to forgive others. Weekly communion for everyone trains us to discern the body and reminds us to be thankful. When Paul tells us in Romans 12 that worship transforms us into better discerners of the will of God, it's not just in regards to the world. Yes, we are not to be conformed to the world, But we also need to learn how to develop our own gifts in the church. We are not to be proud and haughty, but thoughtful and sober-minded. God has given us all gifts. But there is a right way to use those gifts and a wrong way to use them. And this takes discernment. And so, according to Paul, if you have the gift of teaching and you want to be a good teacher, you must first be faithful in worship, presenting yourself before God. If you have the gift of giving, it ought to come from an attitude of generosity, and that attitude is shaped here in worship. If you are one with a gift of mercy and caring for other people, it must be done with cheerfulness, which, again, is cultivated here in worship. Back in the 80s, if you remember, another 80s reference, uh, Nancy Reagan sponsored an anti-drug campaign with the famous slogan, Just Say No. And the idea of the campaign was to curb the use of drugs, especially in the teen community. And this was done through education and programs. But it ultimately was not very successful. Because sin cannot be cured through education. Sin requires a heart change. And a heart change only happens through the work of Christ. And we can make a similar observation with the pro-choice advocates, right? While we ought to celebrate Roe vs. Wade, in this reversal, we, and, and while we ought to rejoice when the abortion clinics are shut down, the fact is is that that legislation will not change the hearts of the people. Only Christ can do that, which means that we still have work to do here. And Satan knows this too; he knows how important it is. This is why worship can be so difficult, and, and it, and not even here, like it begins at the house, right? The uh, desire to sleep in instead of getting up and getting the kids dressed and fed and out the door. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but when our kids were younger, like Sunday was the only day they slept in. Like every day of the week, they're up early and they're like, "Dad, get up!" Sunday is like they just have, you know, they've been knocked out or something, and you know, it, it was tempting. You get up and you can drink like three cups of coffee in peace and quiet, and you're like, "Hmm, this seems really nice." And it would be easy just to let the kids sleep. But, but you wake them up, and chaos commences, and you get everyone dressed and fed, barely, including yourself. And not with the reprieve of dropping them off in nursery. No, we bring them to worship, where they wiggle, and they giggle, and they cry. And then we have to chant a psalm, and then we have to get on our knees, conf- confession, and that hurts. And there's a hundred things that can annoy us about it all, but we persevere. And we're glad we did. And we do it all again the next week, and then the next, because it changes us. We are being transformed. We are becoming thankful. We are becoming stronger. We are becoming wiser. And we are becoming more like Christ. We see the maturity in our own lives. We see the growth in our brothers and sisters worshiping with us. And we see the impact our worship has on the world around us out there. And sometimes the victories are huge like Roe vs. Wade or our church growth that we've seen over the last two years. But sometimes you may never see, never see these victories. Like your faithfulness at home and how it influences your neighbor to start reading the Bible to their own children at home. Or your honesty and dedication at work in the face of trials causing your coworker to step his game up. And the little things matter And they matter because God works through them. And they matter because this matters. This bread and wine that we're about to eat and drink is a free gift. It's a sign, it's a declaration even, that we are at peace with the God of the universe, the judge of the living and the dead. But it came at a price. The Son of God, whose body was broken and blood was spilled on the cross, went to work on our behalf for our salvation. And this is glorious news, not just for us, but for the whole world. And they may not know it. They hate us right now. They they may not even want it. But they need us to be here doing this. So when you take communion, be thankful and rejoice. Celebrate with your brothers and sisters and laugh with delight. Christ is risen. And he loves us. What could be more happy than that? You know? And then, in that joy and thankfulness, remember that we got a job to do. So in the strength of the Holy Spirit, roll up your sleeves and get to work. Almighty and most merciful God, grant that by the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, we may be enlightened and strengthened for your service. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, Amen.